Well, self-autonomy is something that I want to speak about uh, this morning from God's Word because self-autonomy or self-determinism, um, leading yourself, is something that is really primary to our culture and our world. In fact, I think very few things are as foundational to sort of our 21st century American viewpoint than you do you. You be you. You guide you. And ultimately, what is centered on that is your happiness. This morning, let's talk about your happiness. This morning, let's talk about my happiness and how really, ultimately, if we are honest, everything that we do and think, our knee-jerk reactions, even our long, thoughtful processes, are informed by what makes me happy. What makes me happy, what makes you happy, what makes you comfortable, what makes me comfortable. And what really we're revealing in that is that I am truly a free, autonomous agent who gets to hold together, decide, and lead my life the way that I desire. Now, some of us are like, yes, that sounds about right. What is wrong with that? That's really, really good. What's wrong with that is that there's this Bible, right? There's the Bible. And before we even get into the contents of the Bible, just the sheer existence of the Word of God, we must recognize that you doing you, you leading you, is completely out of step with the way in which that God has made this world, that he's made reality. In fact, if you think about it, you never thumb through the pages of the Bible and you go, I get it. I'm in charge. This is what this is telling me. I'm supposed to decide what to do with my life. You never read this and go, wow, I'm at the center of this universe. What we do is we pluck one verse out of there and go, see, I'm supposed to have this this incredible life that God wants. Yes, he desires for you to have an incredible life, but not based on your definition, based on his. See, I think one of the fundamental things that we have to recognize in following Jesus is that you are not at the center of the universe. I am not at the center of the universe. Your children are not the center of the universe. My children are not the center. Your romantic engagement, your your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, not at the center of the universe. That we do not determine, self-actualize, and lead our own lives. What the Word of God constantly and consistently says is there is a God in heaven and you are not him. That's really hard, isn't it? It's a lot easier in this culture to go, you do you, I'll do me. And as long as that doesn't overlap and conflict with one another, we can all pursue our happiness. But the God of the Bible is too good, is too gracious to let you decide what will make you happy. He's that good that he protects you from you. He protects me from me. And I think through the lines of Acts chapter 4, we get a picture of a God who does not say you are in charge, but a God who is good, who is all-sufficient and knows everything. And the best news that we could hear is that he is in control. And if he is in control, then the weight of the world that you carry because you are the deciding factor of your future can melt away and you can know peace. I think that's the word that the Lord has for us this morning. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need your help. Because I think in this moment, I really believe that. I really believe that you're in charge. I really believe that you're sovereign and in control. But man, come Sunday at 2 p.m. through Sunday next week at 8.59, I sure often act like I am. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me, help my friends, my brothers and sisters, help, sisters, help us as a church, Father, to come to your word in humility, to come to your word not as those who have it figured out, but those who are desperately in need of your guidance, of your deliverance, of your protection, of your peace, of your will and your work and your word. So, God, help us, we pray. Help me to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. Father, I pray that it would be the power of your word that prevails this morning. Not the pithiness or inconsistency of a preacher. Would that not be the thing that steals our attention? But would your enduring worth, your beauty and your truth, God, that's what changes us. That's what melts our hearts. That's what I'm desperate for. It's really good to know that I'm not in control. Help me to believe that. Help us to believe that. Help us to live in accordance with that. And help us to do that through your word. Change us on the spot. Would we not be a people who make a plan to live differently tomorrow, but would we be a people by your spirit transformed where we sit right now? We trust that you can do that. We trust that you desire to do that because you're just that powerful and you're just that good. So we ask that you do that in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, 
Amen. Well, let's catch us up. We've been in Acts now for a minute, as they say, which means a little bit longer than a little bit of time. And we've been in Acts, and we have been following particularly the power of God. Because the power of God is what, what, what infuses, if you will, what fills up the people of God as they are waiting in accordance with the words of Jesus. They are waiting for Jesus to send his helper. He says, wait in Jerusalem. I will send my helper to you. The Spirit of God fills them up, and then they go out. They go out, and particularly Peter and John, and what has animated chapters 3 and 4 in particular has been Peter and John's work to tell a man who was unable to walk from birth to get up and walk. And we should never get over that story. We should never get over the story that ultimately there was this man who was unable to walk, is now able to walk. This is not a story just in the Bible. This is the power of God that is alive and well today in the people of God, by the Spirit of God. This is what we're to learn from these scriptures. And yet Peter and John faced opposition. You would think that everybody would celebrate when somebody who was on the margins of society, when somebody who was victimized by a social structure would be liberated and helped and healed. But others saw that not as celebratory or celebration worthy, but actually conflicting and contradictory to their power and to their desires. The religious elites, the Sanhedrin, the priest, the captain of the temple, all of these guys rallied together in their little religious huddle and said, this is a bad idea. We don't like this. And yet, despite what they liked, 5,000 men, so probably upwards of 8,000 people, begin to follow Jesus because they cannot deny that a man who was crippled from birth is now up walking, glorifying God. And they go this lyrical fisticuffs where Peter preaches, and they accuse him of stuff, they throw him in jail. Peter preaches again, they go back and forth, and ultimately, they release them from jail. And when they are released from jail, here's what they do. They go back and find their friends. Look at verse 23 in Acts chapter 4. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Don't you love this? They go to their friends. Now, that might be simple, but I've got to confess to you as somebody who ultimately is not very good at making, keeping, and cultivating good friendships, it seems that Peter and John really are good at that. They do see their community of faith as a place of key friendships, places where they're going to celebrate what God has done. And can you imagine the joy and power they were bringing to these people? You guys cannot believe what just happened to us. They were like, whose name did you do this? We're like, Jesus. And they're like, ah, we don't like that. Go to jail. And we were in jail for a night. And then we came out. They go, what power? And they go, we said, Jesus. And then they were even more terrified. 5,000 people got saved. It's awesome. (sighs) Right? I mean, this is this moment. Like, have you ever had a friend who had one of those days that was so joyful they had to come run and tell you before Twitter, oh, that's a good friend. That comes to you before they go to the digital universe and tell everybody what's going on. They go, I wanted to tell you first. We're getting this beauty of friendship, this beauty of Christian community. They couldn't help but tell them what was going on, telling their friends, reporting to them, and thinking about all that's taken place. See, Acts 1, we saw God's people find power in God's spirit. We also saw God fulfilling his word, God encouraging, helping his people to obey his word, Acts 2, we saw God's spirit unifies the nations. We saw God's word transform sinful people. Acts 3, God's people praise God when God works. God's word transforms religious people. And then in Acts 4, God's son is the cornerstone of God's people and God protects his people. It's all of this that they are recording, reiterating, and telling the story to their friends, telling them of all the great things that God has done. Isn't it true that even in our greatest friendships, we fill up a lot of time with nonsense? With nonsense. We talk about nothing at all. And to be sure, as I learned to be a friend, it's really good to have moments that really, they're not very productive. You're just connecting at a heartfelt human level where you waste time together. It's a beautiful thing. And yet I think we are varsity level at wasting time and we're anemic in sharing the stories of what God is up to in our lives. We often just come together and talk about nothing at all. And to be sure, some of that really good for the soul. Really good for the soul. But that's not the source and substance and power of good friendship. The things of God are. And so Peter and John come and we say, we have to share what God has done. And here's what good friends do. When they hear good news about what God has done, look at verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They lifted their voices together. In other words, they worshiped God. 
They praised God. They celebrated and prayed to God. They responded rightly to the work of God, not by glorifying their friends. Oh, that would have been easy. Wow, you're incredible. Peter, you did what? You're crazy. You stood up to those guys? I won't even look those guys in the eye. I can't believe that you did that. And John, you just let Peter talk again? When are you going to do something? That's just a little editorial, I can imagine. If you remember, Peter is always the one who's talking. He gives me great hope. The beauty in this is that what Peter and John don't do is go into isolation to celebrate. They don't go into isolation to think about their story. They bring it to the community. They bring it to the community and not to glorify themselves because in isolation, we are most tempted to glorify ourselves. They bring it to the community, bring it to the church, say, here's what God has done. And instead of putting them up on priestly pedestals, they magnify God. They glorify God and they are united in prayer. This theme of togetherness is really critical in Acts, and this word is going to be consistently used by Luke throughout Acts. And so you see it used here in verse 24, that they lifted their voices, and and it almost seems redundant. They lifted their voices together to God. They did this together. They They were celebrating, if you will, with a singular voice or with a unifying voice. See, the the church must be united to prayer, in prayer, and in praise together if the church is to be the church. That's what it means to be us as the people of God. We welcome the celebration of a brother or sister, and we don't receive it as competition. We receive it as an opportunity to glorify God for the great things that he's done. See, what the early church is getting is an understanding of being rooted in the Word of God, being rooted in obedience to God, and therefore when God works, you're not eager to praise a man or a woman. You want to praise God himself because he alone could do it. And so the way that they do this, they begin to pray, but they pray Psalm 2. And so to help us kind of get in their mindset a little bit, flip to the left a few books of the Bible to act or to Philippians, <laughs> keep going, uh, to Psalm chapter 2. It's about in the middle of your Bible. Looks like it's about one-third of the way in mine. Middle of your Bible, if you're in Proverbs, go to the left. If you're in Isaiah, go to the left. If you're in Job, go to the right. Psalm chapter 2. And the people of God are going to respond now to God working, to freeing Peter and John, to protecting Peter and John. They're going to be worshiping God for for liberating this man from the captivity that he was in, unable to walk. So they're joining with the concert of all of this momentum of praise, if you will. And they're going to anchor everything they are about to praise God for in Psalm chapter 2. Here are these words. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst the bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven, in the heavens, laughs. The Lord upholds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Ultimately, what Psalm chapter 2 is about, this is about the will. Really, it's the juxtaposing of two distinct wills, the will of the nations, the will of the peoples, the will of kings, the will of princes, pitted against the will of the Lord. It's this juxtaposition, as David writes, of this clashing of these two wills. It's a warning to those who would come at not just the Lord, but particularly the Lord's anointed. This is Old Testament language for the Messiah, the the Christ, the rescuer of the people of God that God would send. And don't you love, in the midst of this clashing, God laughs. He laughs. 
This is not just one will is more powerful than the other. It is laughable, God says, and God shows it is laughable that the will of humanity would ever come against the will of God. It's laughable. It's not just different. We just go, I have different plans than God does. No, he laughs at them. All the millennials in the room got real uncomfortable, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a millennial too. This is why I like to talk to us together as a little community within the community. It's helpful for us to hear this, that ultimately as we, here, this, is what, this is what the word of God does, as we, everywhere we look, everywhere we turn, are the centerpiece of culture that you decide, you lead, you determine, you are sovereign. I want you to hear Psalm 2, that God laughs when you bring your will up against his. It's not just different. He chuckles. And it's not like, ha-ha, that's funny, but ha-ha, what are you thinking? That's a bad idea. It's this particular text with this text in mind that the people of God gather, and now they're going to worship God for what he has done. Flip back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 24, the latter half of verse 24, and we'll read through 30. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and here he quotes Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, now they're beginning to explain that text in their prayer. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with, with boldness, with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's vital for us to understand that there's some exegesis going on. They're, they're understanding the meaning of the scriptures and applying them or even teaching them through their prayer. Notice the language. First, they quote Psalm 2, and then they begin to communicate how Psalm 2 is manifesting or is displayed or even fulfilled in their particular story and situation. But firstly, what they do is they say three things about God. Look at the way that they call him. They call him Sovereign Lord. In Greek, the concept of sovereignty conveys the highest and most powerful king. So they're setting up their prayer as they're about to quote about the kings and princes of this earth. They are calling out to God as the sovereign king and Lord over all things. Secondly, what they said is that they speak of God's power of creation, that he created everything, that he has created all of earth, that he is the one who has made everything that exists. Thirdly, Communicate that God directed the words of King David through the Holy Spirit, if you notice, in Psalm 2. So after they've sort of communicated the power of God, the quality and nature of God, the characteristics of God, now they begin to extrapolate meaning from Psalm 2. Remember, this is an incredible prayer. This is an incredible prayer. I'm thinking about sometimes I'm just like, dear God, thank you, help. And they're like quoting and, and exegeting Psalm 2. Look, this was the first thing that they say about Psalm 2. Through prayer, the people of God make the connection between the rage of the nations and the rage of the peoples who are plotting in Psalm 2 with what's happening in their city. Did you notice that language? Look at verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appoint, anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with who? The Gentiles and the people of Israel. So in other words, they're taking words written hundreds of years previously. Hundreds of, written by King David, one of the patriarchs of their people, the greatest king that they look back and consider. They're quoting his words and saying, what David was speaking about is happening right here. It's happening right here. People are plotting. People are coming at Jesus in rage. Secondly, they make a connection between the kings and the rulers of the earth in Psalm 2 with Herod and Pontius Pilate. 
the two rulers in charge, over the mistreatment and execution of Jesus. And then thirdly, what's implied and then made explicit is that they are making a connection between the anointed one, the Messiah, whispered about in Psalm 2, with Jesus Christ. It's amazing what these people in their prayer are communicating to us 2,000 years later, helping us to understand that ultimately Psalm 2 is not just this sort of hypothetical communication of wills coming at the Lord. It was a prophecy, a prophetic word that now the people of God are seeing fulfilled in their midst. The nations are raging, the people are plotting to take out Jesus, the Messiah, and the kings and rulers of the earth are allowing that injustice to be executed again the Lord's anointed. And here's the key. Here's the critical key here. Is that if that is Jesus, if that truly is the application, then what we are easily tempted to believe is that the raging people won at the death of Jesus. That the plotting people won at the death of Jesus. The rulers and the kings won at the death of Jesus. But then there's this line. There's this line that just makes you say, hmm, look at verse 28. All of the people plotting in vain, all of these kings and these rulers to do whatever your hand, God, and your plan had predestined to take place. Hmm. All of this plotting, all of this anger, all of this rage, all of this lording over by the kings and rulers, we're going to show you, Jesus, you can't come at us. And the Lord is like, you're doing exactly everything that I predestined before the foundation of the world you think you've got a will. think I've got a will to lead my life, to do what I desire. Three more things I think are revealed in this prayer. Firstly, the people of God are committed to his word. See, in a time of celebration, and yet there's still this impending threat, they respond not by going and hiding. They respond by praying and anchoring themselves in the word of God. Yes, Peter and John were just allowed to get out of jail, and they were just freed and protected. And yet at the same time, they knew that these religious leaders hadn't given up. They're like, never mind, we'll be on team Jesus. That wasn't what was happening. They were biding their time. If you remember, the reason that the rulers backed off in chapter 4 is because they're like, there's like 8,000 people following them. This is bad PR if we come at these guys. This is not a good idea to go at them right now. We're going to back up, let them go, because we can't figure out what to do yet. They're just lying in wait to come back at them. And the people of God know this, because this is what they always do. They're always oppressing them. They understood this. And yet, instead of running and fleeing and fearing, what do they do? They pray, and they get in the Word of God. How convicting is that? Like, that's a sermon in and of itself. At the greatest celebration, they've been freed. They pray and they get in the word of God. And yet still this tension about we still might lose our lives. What should we do? Let's pray and get in the word of God. It's deeply convicting for me. I wonder about you. Secondly, what we also see, they still see God as fully in control even though the death of Jesus has taken place. They still see God as sovereign over all of this because Jesus rose from the dead and yet they're seeing the power of God was not just something in the past but something that was available to them by grace, through faith, by God's spirit right then and there. See, their story that they were identifying with of Jesus and the protection and power of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus was not just a message they needed to hear. It was a power that enabled them to live by faith. It's completely different than we often view faith. That that my faith is really just a story that's different from other people's story. But the early church saw their, their, their story was merely reminding them, showing them, displaying for them the power that was alive and well to protect, keep, and restore, heal, and resurrect them. Thirdly, these people have no doubt that Jesus is the Messiah whom David is writing. They're not thinking this is probably the case. And so what we're seeing through their prayers, incredible amount of faith, an incredible amount of persistent, audacious courage. And having affirmed all of this, the fulfillment of Psalm 2 is this messianic text. Luke now shows us how this prayer results for the people of God. Look at verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they are gathered together, there's that word again, together, was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Simply put, they prayed. And the place that they were in shook. 
and the Spirit filled them. And they kept speaking with boldness. In other words, God's character and his word revealed and restored and equipped them to live a courageous and joyful life. And remember, they're not out of harm's way yet. And yet Luke tells us they keep living this way. They keep living the way that's going to get them in trouble with our opposition. Isn't it true whenever we face opposition, we edit ourselves, change a little bit, try to downplay things a little bit. I know I'm prone to do that. It's like the last time that got me in trouble and insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. You know what? Sometimes we confuse insanity with faith. Because isn't it true? A lot of times we are doing the same thing over and over and, and not just believing and thinking a wishful thought and a prayer, but trusting that God will be true to his word. That maybe this particular time it didn't bear the fruit that I was expecting, but I'm convinced through prayer, I'm convinced through being together with the community, I'm convinced by the word of God that this truly is the way to obey God. So the question for us is, why don't we speak with that kind of boldness? Why don't we have that kind of courage? Well, we don't speak the word of God because we don't know the word of God. And we don't know the word of God because we don't go to the word of God in celebration and in sorrow. And we don't go to the word of God, and here is where it really gets down to the heart of it. We don't go to the word of God because we believe we're sovereign and not the Lord. So we go to our emotions, we go to our feelings, we go to our thoughts, we go inwardly instead of grounding ourselves in what God has made clear through his word. And so I think we need to look close at this idea of the sovereignty of God. So let's take just a couple of moments, think through, because we've had two particularly powerful verses here communicating the power of God's sovereignty. In verse 24, this is how they address him, as sovereign Lord. And in verse 28, we see that God is a God who predestines everything. And so when we talk about this, what we're really talking about is God's providence. God's providence over all things. And it breaks down, for those of you who are note takers, this will be for your joy. It breaks down in three basic ways. God's providence breaks down into uh, his preservation, his concurrence, and his governance. And we're going to go through all three of those for your good and mine. So God's preservation. Preservation is the act of God to not merely create everything, but to preserve, cultivate, maintain, and hold everything together by his will and power. Let that settle for just a second. God is not a God who just creates and then walks away and says, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you don't mess it up. God is not a God who creates and walks away. God is a God who creates and remains intimately involved with every aspect and atom of his creation. He is a God who is engaged. He is a God who cultivates. He's a God who maintains. He's a God who holds everything together. Fellas, just, uh, this, this is good for me because I think I hold my family together. I think I hold my marriage together. I hold my church together. I hold my work together. This is an assault against my conscience. Are you feeling that two wills cannot remain? Look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. I'll just read it for you. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I, I want you to see, this is beautiful actually, the writer of Hebrews. This doesn't count as my time. The writer of Hebrews says in the exact same sentence that the Lord holds everything together and he also sits. In other words, he's not anxious. He's not worried. He holds everything together in a seated position. How amazing is that? I'm constantly anxious. I'm constantly eager. And our Lord is a Lord who is so in control that he sits. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And here it is, and in him all things hold together. 
He is a God who does not merely create. He is a God who sustains. He is a God who holds together. And so if in your thinking of who God is, you believe that he knitted you together in your mother's womb, and then once you were born, you were on your own, you need to correct your theology. And so do I. Because our God is a God who creates, who sustains, who gives every breath that you breathe. Every step that you take. Not only does he preserve in his providence, but he also works in concurrence. Concurrence, secondly, is the act of God that not merely preserves everything, but he invites human beings in particular and creation in general into a cultivating and keeping relationship with him to work concurrently toward his will. Psalm 148 verse 8 tells us about creation. Fire, hail, snow, and mist, snowy wind, fulfilling his word. Proverbs 16 verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap. In other words, somebody rolls the dice, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Ephesians 1, 11. In him... We obtain an inheritance having been predestined according to the power of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Philippians 2 verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, we find our will by God's grace wrapped up in the will of of God. This is why we say that Christian maturity is the exact opposite of every other brand of maturity. Every other brand of maturity, you grow up into independence, increasing independence that will go from feeding you squeezy packs from one day and little mashed up fruit that one day you'll be able to eat for yourself, go to college and get a job. Can I get an amen? This is the pathway that we hope for our children. But ultimately, in Christian maturity, what happens is the exact opposite, that the longer I follow Jesus, the more I realize how dependent I am on him, how much I need him. I don't, I don't increase in independence, therefore I don't need his word as much or his hand to hold me as much or to guide me as much. I realize as the, as the light of the word and the light of God gets closer to my heart, the more crevices and dirt and filth gets revealed. Am I preaching to you yet? And the beauty is that in that, the Lord invites us in to do his will and his work. He doesn't give up on us. He invites us in to his work by grace through faith. This leads to the third point. Not only does providence include his preservation and concurrence, but also his governance. Governance is the act of God to not merely preserve and to work with creation, but ultimately, don't get it twisted, to be the Lord over all creation and work in and through his creation to bring about his purposes and plan. Generally speaking, we love preservation. That makes us feel good. We love concurrence because I can sort of keep a little bit of my identity. Governance makes us real uncomfortable. Real uncomfortable. And it's all part of God's providence and sovereignty. And it makes us uncomfortable because this is where we realize we need salvation. This is where we need, realize that we need resurrection. Psalm 103 verse 19 the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Romans 11:36 For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 27 For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's Christ. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected, accepted, excuse me, expected, put all things in subjection under him. So the Lord does not simply preserve all things. He does not merely work concurrently with creation, but ultimately he governs and lords over all creation. See, regretfully, we're numbered among the rulers who build up our will and really try to preserve work within ourselves and to govern our own lives. So the sovereignty of God is really helpful and really revealing for us about our sin. And th this is really what confession is about. First, and what we try to do every message, we highlight who God is. We've highlighted his providence, his sovereignty. And as we consider that, we should worship him for it, but we should also realize I don't live in light of that. 
I don't live in light of God's governance and preservation and concurrence. I often step outside of that because of the brokenness of my heart, the evil in my heart, the selfishness in my heart. I step outside of that and try to preserve myself. And I try to work alone, not concurrently in subjection to his will, but on my own. Because ultimately I want to govern myself. I want to be the Lord of my own life. And so confession is always two things. Confession is always first highlighting and and worshiping God for who he is, and then confessing, acknowledging with the Lord how I am not that, and how I don't live in light of that, how I don't live in submission to that. And so I think it is a healthy thing for us constantly, consistently, particularly through prayer, to say, Lord, this is who you are, and I don't live in light of that regularly. Are you tracking with me? And so when we, when we come to God's word, and my desire for us as we come and even preach a message is to give away the notes and to say, this is what I believe the word of God does, is that it highlights who God is, and then we need to wrestle with the fact that we are not that, and we don't live in light of God being that, and that's our sin. And what do I mean? Well, I think we, pre- we, we attempt to preserve ourselves by hiding. We attempt to preserve ourselves by hiding our shame, our guilt, and our sin. We don't confess things one to another. We don't walk in the light as he is in the light. We believe and trust the lies of darkness. Because the lies of darkness say, I will protect you. I, I, I will help you. I will heal you. And darkness cannot do any of those things. And so we don't share the deep dysfunction or pain or stories of shame in our life because we are fearful that if we do, we will not be preserved, we will not be protected, we will not be okay. Now, to be sure, many of us have ways in which the church has not been a safe place. The church, even small groups, have not been safe places to live these exposed lives. And our desire as a church is to grow more and more into a context, a community that really combats the lies of darkness by walking in light from the stage in small groups and the way we make decisions and the way we conduct ourselves so that we see that ultimately the church may fail you, but the Lord never will. And that when the church fails you, we need to see that's out of step with the gospel. And there needs to be accountability for that because that is not okay. Christians ought to feel this great joy and walking into the light, to be sure with sorrow and difficulty. But often we believe that the darkness is more powerful, that the darkness will protect us. And so instead of believing that God will preserve all things, we try to preserve ourselves by not living authentically, vulnerably, and honestly. Secondly, we work alone, some of us more than others. We work alone, and we don't consider God's word. So instead of working concurrently with God's word, we work alone based on our own word. Think about it this way. When life goes really well, I mean really well, new job, new relationship, new child, right? It's twins. That's really well, right? All of those things. When God does that, where do you go? How do you think through that? What we're tempted often to do is either one, be very fearful that life, this is as good as it's going to get and like everything's going to go downhill from here, right? Or we look back at what we have done and we begin to share the story about this is how you too can live this life that I'm living. Like, and I write a book and this is how you can do these things and have this relationship and have this, all of these sorts of things. We begin to congratulate and look at ourselves and not to the word of God who wills and works everything according to his good pleasure. See, when you read the word of God and you're in the midst of celebration, you have a really hard time celebrating yourself because you realize you did not do that. It is despite your best efforts and mine that God continues to be gracious to us continues to overwhelm us with his generosity. So we don't go to God's word. And so I would would suggest to you that one of the reasons we don't celebrate in accordance with God's word is because we regularly are not in the habit of reading his word. We're not regularly in the habit of going to his word. See, if we were to be legalistic about it, we would say, you need to read your Bible every day. But that's not really the point. The point is not reading your Bible every day. The point is to be grounded in the word of God. So, so we've, we've missed this pathway for um, the, the idea of what it's actually really about. It's that we would be grounded in him. Because many of us could read our Bibles every single day, but we don't trust it, we don't love it, we don't believe it, so you're not even grounded in it. It's just a religious habit. I, I would like to suggest to you, the Pharisees read their Bible every day. And they got puffed up in accordance with it. See, see, this is why we must confess regularly, highlighting who God is, realizing who we are not, asking him more and more to ground us in his word. Thirdly, not only do we preserve ourselves, do we work alone, but we desire to govern ourselves because our happiness is so precious to us. Our happiness is so precious to us. We trust our happiness. 
We trust our version of happiness. And we get terrified if we ever believe that our plan, our four-year plan that we set, this is why we came to Chicago, to do this, 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 this all of these things, right? And then all of a sudden, we realize, actually, those things aren't giving me happiness. Let's, let's course correct and learn some things. And we set a new course based on our own inclinations, our own desire. And we do the same thing over and over again. Friend, you know that your vision of the future doesn't lead to happiness. So the, the, you are the problem, not the solution. See, we need, we need help in this. We need the will of God. We need the word of God. We need the governance and control of God. Our greatest problem is we continue to try to take our life by our power to bring about our dreams for our happiness. And we know it doesn't work. We know it doesn't work, but we also don't have a better solution that we can invent on ourselves and get all the glory. We realize if we're completely dependent on God, he's going to get all the glory. That's really good news, friend. That's really good news. So what of free will? Well, in truth, uh, free will as we often consider it is a myth. It's a myth. We often consider free will as being a completely free and autonomous agent, right? And this is, I think, one of the myths that, that anchors this ideology of our modern world, that we believe we're truly free moral agents. But when we realize and read the story of the fall of Adam and Eve, is that instead of being bound to God and his will and his word, they were bound to sin and their will and their word, and that ultimately of evil. And this is how Paul recounts it in Romans 6. Hear this. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that, that if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one who you, whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Don't you love that? For just as you were presented, presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Here's the biblical conundrum and the reality for us that, that is an onslaught to our modern consciousness. You are either bound to sin or you are bound to righteousness. You are never a free moral agent bound to nothing. You are either bound to sin or you are bound to righteousness. See, if we are born with this invisible inclination towards self, we are born into the bondage of sin. This is why we are the worst person to determine what our life should be like, what it is to be happy. We don't know. We have neither the wisdom nor the goodness to determine what is true and best and beautiful, even just for us. Sin has crippled our affections. But here's the good news of the gospel. There's hope. Not to become a self-willed, self-sovereign agent, but to become enslaved to the King and Lord who is both completely wise and completely good who is truly full of mercy, who is truly full of grace. See, he alone is able to bring about a will which is both good and pleasing to him, which is your truest and greatest need. But friend, please hear this. It's his will, not yours. It's his will, not mine. See, the pathway to freedom from sinfulness and sinful captivity and enslavement was a pathway that went through the cross. See, twice already in Acts, Luke has made clear that this pathway is fully in accord with the will of God, the pathway of the cross. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then again, Luke makes it clear in our, our text this morning in verse 27 and 28, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you see that it was the providence and sovereign grace of God that allowed Jesus to step on the cross according to his will for your sin and for mine? The one who orchestrated all things orchestrated our salvation. The one who created everything walked up a mountain he created, allowed himself to be nailed to a tree that he spoke into existence. 
The only way that unity would be achieved in our fallenness, and our fallenness was to be forgiven and healed and restored, had to be through the cross because it was the will of God. In other words, the one Jesus who was completely unencumbered by the will of another allowed himself to surrender to the will of God and allowed himself to be bound to the consequences of sin on a cross. There is no one like Jesus. The only one undeserving of consequence is the only one who could pay for it completely. See, this divine and providential work of God creates something that self-determinism never can. That self-will never can. It's a real community. Look at the words that Luke ends this passage with in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The brilliance of this is that we believe that we can put together this kind of community while not laying down our kingdoms and our will. The problem is is that when we force our will and our kingdom, it leads to our death. We are bound by sin, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, he not only can make you new, he can make us new together. See, even our gospel message has become so individualistic. It's about our will and our plans and our dreams that we forget the gospel is not just for you. It is for us to make us a people. Too many of us believe that we are saved and don't give a rip about anybody else. The question I'd have for you is if that's your kind of gospel, then it doesn't touch Acts chapter 4, then I wonder if you're saved at all. To only care about yourself reveals you need salvation, not that you have been saved. See, because the mark of a community that has been transformed by the will of another, we start doing crazy things. We look at other people's needs, not as like, ah, I wonder what got them into that kind of trouble. No, I'm going to help you. I'm going to do the completely modernly irrational thing and sell stuff and give you the proceeds. We go, ah, that was a time that God worked back then, and now 401k is retirement. We've got to be wise. Really? Do we have to be wise, or are we just terrified that we can't preserve ourselves? See, if we're preserving ourselves, we don't sell stuff to help people because stuff protects us. Stuff helps preserve us, and it helps govern our own lives. We don't want to give things away. We are turned into hoarders. We're turned into people that keep and protect our own possessions, and we don't see the needs of others. This is amazing what God does with people. This this is crazy. This shouldn't happen. This is a miracle of God's grace. Can you even imagine being a part of this kind of community? where we were vulnerable to the point where we shared our needs with one another and we joyfully celebrated in caring for one another. But not caring for one another so that we would get the praise and glory and worship, but ultimately caring for one another because that's what we were convinced God and Christ had done for us. So we never quite got over that. So therefore, it's unsurprising for us to see that the most rich among the early church laid down their wealth. Look at this one particular story as it leads us into next week, into chapter 5, verse 36 and 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. When we're gripped by fear and self-sovereignty and self-will, We don't lay anything down at anybody's feet. Here, a man who was incredibly wealthy took proceeds from something that was incredibly a powerful possession, a powerful commodity in that world, and gave it away. And he actually gave it away and entrusted it. He didn't even say, here's what you should do with it. See how free he was? He just gave it to the church and said, let's use it. Whatever comes up, let's use it together. Now, this is not like a spin move that I go, so all of you now sell everything and bring it to me. 
You're like, seriously? (laughs) No, I think what it gives us a picture of is people who give without strings attached. People who have loved according to the will of another, according to the will of God in a way that has nailed Satan's sin and death to the cross when ultimately it was my sin, my shame that nailed him there, that put him there. When that really gets into you, you live differently. You live in a completely counterintuitive and countercultural kind of way. And it begins to set ripple effects. Ripple effects into a world that has incredible need and incredible questions. See, ultimately what I think that we have, friends, is an opportunity not just with a message to tell the world, but with a transformative community who has been transformed by the gospel to live differently. See, our friends, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, our our extended family, they don't need another message and a pithy way to put something. They need to see that we actually believe this stuff. That this has infected us so much so at the core level that we begin to live differently in light of the calling by which we have been called. In other words, it means that we begin to live not according to our will, but the will of another. Can you imagine in a culture and a world that is determined by individualistic will, if we start living in accordance with the will and word of God and surrendered together as a community to do this? Do you see that the gospel is not just a little bit different, that you just add to your self-willed life? It is a death to your old life and a resurrection to a new life. So brother and sister, the invitation is for all of us to live a life according to the will of Jesus and the word of God so that more and more people would know the goodness and grace of our providential sovereign Lord. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness. We have not lived according to your word. We've lived according to our own will and our own word. And so in the midst of that brokenness, we are overwhelmed by the gospel that saves us, protects us, heals us, forgives us, transforms us. The beauty of confession is that afresh we get to experience the power of your grace. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters, whatever bout they are in the middle of, of self-will, of preservation, of working alone, or of governing their own lives, oh God, would you convict us by your Spirit. That only leads to our death. When we are bound to sin, Father, we acknowledge it leads to our death. Bind us up in righteousness, we pray. To live in a way that, that, that the surrounding world would say, that doesn't make any sense. We desire that, Father, because you're worthy of that. You're worthy of me laying down my life. You're worthy of us laying down our life and being united together as your church. So God, unite us. Do that work. Make us humble. Make us holy. Make us instruments in the palm of your hand to bring about your good, pleasing, and perfect will, to bring out all things according to the counsel of your will, that as you direct every molecule, every atom, every raindrop, every temperature of the sunshine, would you direct the steps of your people. Would you direct the affections of our heart? Would you direct the inclinations of our mind that you would unite us by the will of God for the sake of your will, for the sake of your purposes? And then the months and years to come, we'll just point back to the stories of all that you have accomplished because you're the only one deserving of the praise and the glory because you're the one who did the work. And so God, receive our praise, receive our obedience. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?